welcome to Sparks 538's Science Podcast, where we talk about the big ideas behind pieces of science writing. I'm science editor Blythe Terrell. This month we're doing something a little bit different. Instead of framing our conversation around a science-related book, we're going to be talking about the science behind conflicts of interest. The impetus of this is a conversation related to President Trump and his business ties and how they might affect his leadership. But we're also going to talk about medicine and some other fields as well. I'm here today with our amazing 538 Science team. We have senior science writer Maggie Kurth-Baker. Hey, Maggie. Hello. How are you? Great. We have lead health writer Anna Maria Berry-Jester. Hey, Anna. Hi, Blythe. And we have lead science writer Christy Ashwanden. Hey, Christy. Hello. All right. So let us begin by talking about what a conflict of interest is. I know we've um, chatted about some different definitions. So, Christy, what, how would you define it, or what do you think is a good definition of a conflict of interest? Yeah, so I did a little bit of looking into this, and I'll just say that there's no sort of one universal definition that I found anywhere, but they all sort of hinge on the same thing. So one sort of unifying theme, though, is that there's potential for this to occur when someone's professional judgment, you know, basically doing their job, could be influenced by some other interests, such as, you you know, financial stakes, things like that. We're going to be talking about uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association just had a whole special issue about conflicts of interest. And I'll just read the, the definition that they used for their issue. And that is, a conflict of interest occurs when professional judgment concerning a primary interest, such as a patient's welfare or the validity of research, may be influenced by a secondary interest, such as financial gain. Um, and they also make the, the point that perceptions of conflict of interest are as important as actual conflicts of interest. And I think maybe that's a point that we'll get to in a minute. But basically, what this is saying is that it's any time that someone's ability to do their job or do what they're supposed to be doing could be influenced by outside interests, whether it's, you know, money, things like that, whether it is professional relationships. I mean, there's really a wide array of things that could be this other influence, but it's it's taking them away from their primary duty. So in the case of the doctor, that would be taking care of the patient's interest. In the case of the president of the United States, that would be you know, keeping the country's best interests at heart. So I was going to say that like one of the things I sort of ran across in this when it comes to the discussion about politics is that it's kind of hard to draw the line sometimes between a conflict of interest and a real legitimate interest when you're talking about represented democracy, right? So like, say you are a politician from a heavily oil and gas state, and you were elected to represent people who work in the oil and gas industry effectively. You know, in that case, is your... You know, are your financial ties and your votes connected to the oil and gas industry a conflict of interest, or is that just representing your constituency well, right? Like, there's there's a lot of these kind of places where it gets into gray areas and where it kind of becomes difficult to to determine whether something is a conflict in the bad sense or a conflict in like you doing your job. Yeah. What I liked about these JAMA definitions is that it separates primary interest and secondary interest, which kind of 
forces you to define your primary interest. So like in the case of a physician, you know, um, it's sort of that doctor-patient relationship that's their primary. Now they might be doing research that could help lots of people, you know, with whatever its findings are, but that's a secondary interest, right? In terms of the the care that they're providing to an individual. Um, and I, and I, you know, your point, Maggie, is a really good one that when we're talking about a legislator or a politician, they, they have lots of things that they're representing and doing and whatnot. So, but I, I think it's really helpful to see sort of pull out this primary interest and secondary interest because it, it, again, forces you to define what your primary interests are. Right. So like if you're a state representative from a region of Oklahoma where almost everyone in your constituency works in the oil and gas industry, for instance, you might have a primary interest in, you know, defending that industry in some ways. But I think where it gets tricky, though, is that you know, I think the ACA is a really great example of this. You may have, so that legislator may have constituents that are saying, you know, I don't want, you know, let's overturn the ACA, let's get rid of it. But it may, in fact, be in some of those constituents' best interests. I mean, you have sometimes where people's sort of beliefs about the world and beliefs about things don't actually align with the you know, evidence. And so that that's when it can get very tricky, right? So if you have people that are saying, you know, we want to get rid of the ACA because it's made healthcare costs too expensive. Well, in fact, it's not the ACA, you know, that's primarily responsible for that. And, you know, it's just sort of, it gets tricky really quickly, I guess I'm saying. Well, yeah. And I think there are though also some ways where it doesn't get tricky because if we're talking about primary interest and secondary interest, if you're the president of the United States, you know, your bank account should not be your primary interest, right? Right. I think, I mean, I would agree with that. Right. <laughs> and I think, right, exactly. So it's, you know, there's, it's interesting. There's so the, all these different dynamics. There's when any set of conflicting interests, you know, like a, a conflict of interest to be concerned about, right? Like if I, if I do have those constituents, for example, that the example Maggie used, if I have some oil and gas constituents and they are people who work in that industry, they're people who live in my district, and then I have people who don't work in that industry and have different interests also in my district. I mean, you would just, just sort of inherently have disagreement there, perhaps, right, over, you know, whose whose interests do you prioritize? So, yeah, no, it is really it is really tricky, both in politics and I think also in medicine and science and other other fields, too. And I think you have a lot of situations where people's sort of natural interests um, may align with special interests that may be sort of make people ripe for picking or for being influenced by outside interests. So this happens a lot in in medicine and and a lot of a lot of different kinds of science, too, where you have a researcher who, you know, has ideas and beliefs about something. And so, you know, then you have vested interests coming in or corporate interests uh, coming in and saying, okay, you already are doing research or have ideas that align with our objectives. And so we'd like to glob on to you, you know, maybe we give you funding, things like that. And so that researcher may say, well, you know, I already, you know, they're not influencing me. I already had these beliefs. My research was already showing this. This was already sort of my framework for thinking about things. And so there, you know, it becomes tricky because that person will say, well, I'm not being influenced by, you know, the corporation is giving me money. Yeah, that's, it's sort of a little bit up in the air about whether that's true, right? Yeah. So that's a good segue into the science of this, like how, particularly how the science of how this affects science, right? Yeah. I mean, I was going to say that, like, I feel like one of the most surprising things I ran across when I was looking at how conflicts of interest affect politics is that like nobody's really ever been able to effectively prove 
that money you get from a you know from campaign donations changes your vote even though we all know it happens even though we all sort of know that nobody would be donating if they didn't think you know the large corporation would donate to a politician if they didn't think they were going to get some benefit from it but um, I, don't, I don't know but, if we all know that i don't know if well, we I all know that yeah. it influences yeah I well mean, i mean I think but that's like that everybody question. sort of suspects i guess is what i mean right that, yeah. like the general public understands this to be a thing that exists like it's really hard to prove and one of the reasons that it's really hard to prove is because of this chicken egg problem where you know did they donate to you because you already agree with them or did you start to agree right. with them because they donated to you? And how do you tease that apart? I think that there's also this idea that conflicts of interest are really black and white, that it's like this this evil interest that's trying to manipulate people that goes and pays someone off, you know, sort of. So in this case, we're talking about maybe bribes or things like that. But I think in practice, and the research sort of shows this, that's not usually how, how it works. And some of the most effective ways of influencing people and, you know, creating a, a conflict like this is actually much gentler and it's things where the person who has the conflict may not even see it as such right yeah a hundred percent right in in one of the articles in the journal of the american medical association there was this pretty compelling argument and and i I think this is really relevant especially to politics is that we often talk about potential or perceived conflict of interest as opposed to conflict of interest and one of the articles there really argued that there's there's no difference right that if you just having a secondary interest, whether or not it biases your primary interest, is a conflict of interest in itself. I thought that was kind of interesting. And of course, it'd be very consequential if we adopted that idea towards politics. Well, I think that goes back to whether and how it's a problem, too. You know, if, if you're saying, okay, there's always a perceived conflict doesn't really exist, which is what that article was arguing. It was saying there's a conflict or there's not a conflict. And how do you address that? You know, so what did, you know, did did JAMA offer any solutions, for example, if I'm so (laughs) if I'm a patient and I'm concerned, I'm saying, okay, my doctor I know is getting some funding from X drug company. My doctor wants me to take (laughs) drug X. How do what do I do? How do I figure out if my doctor is being unduly influenced or does not have or has a conflict of interest? And his, uh, you know, at the heart of his or her decision making is this money and not my well-being as a patient. How would I ever know that? What would I do? One of the studies in the JAMA series uh, actually started looking at what patients want when it comes to their doctor's conflicts of interest. And I thought that one was particularly interesting because you really seldom see uh, research that is kind of asking people how they feel about this and what they want to have happen. It's usually kind of like a proscribing or a like, oh my God, look at this problem. Um, And what this paper was finding was that people wanted really clear transparency and that's not just like telling me you know when i already have a problem and i have some sort of health issue where i need to make a choice right now between this medication or a different one and now you're telling me that you have a conflict like telling you much earlier in the process you know about what other where your doctor is getting money what other things they're participating in And that people really also wanted their doctors to kind of own up to their own roles. So like a lot of times doctors would sort of talk about the conflicts in the system, but sort of frame it as this, you know, well, this is just how the system works or like, I don't really Mm -hmm. have any control over this, but 
and, the insurance company. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, the, this is how the insurance company pays me. I, I just can't, can't really do anything about it. And people really wanted their doctors to sort of admit that, you know, you are complicit in this system and this is something you have a responsibility for. Yeah, it's helpful to, there are sort of two kinds of conflict of interest that are pretty common in the medical profession. And and so one is sort of this like stakes in a healthcare company, which is very common for physicians to either be involved in a diagnostic tool that they helped create, you know, research, that kind of thing. The other thing is then these sort of like gifts or sponsored meals, promotional things that are given to them by companies. And so those tend to be the two kinds of conflicts of interest we're talking about in medicine. And traditionally, that's been handled, right, by like when you publish a paper, publishing it, you know, like revealing those conflicts of interest, or when you're presenting at a conference, that kind of thing. It's it, it's not as clear to me how a doctor re- is that transparent with a phys- with a patient, other than having to say to them, you know, I have a stake in this right. hip replacement um, device that I'm talking <laughs> about, you know, giving you, which is is really complicated because, I mean, obviously that would be a red flag for a patient, but, you know, trying to determine like what's, what's the conflict, you know, like what's, why, why a patient, why a doctor is prescribing the thing they are, I, you know, I really feel for patients there. Right. And in that instance, it may be that the doctor is saying, Hey, I developed this new screening test and I think it's really great. You know, the old one, I was really, it was terrible. I know that this one works. I believe in it. I believe in it so much that I'm, you know, making it as a company because I believe that everyone should have access to it. And I care about you. You're my patient. And so I want you to have this. Dan Copens at Harvard. Harvard invented this 3D mammography, and he's a huge proponent of it. And he, I've talked to him, and he believes that this is the most advanced technology. It's the greatest. And you know, he'll also say that he's not making direct money off of the company, et cetera. But my point is just that people can actually you know, really believe that they don't have a, a conflict when you know, to outsiders, it doesn't seem reasonable to say that. And there's some pretty good research showing that it doesn't take much for people to be swayed and that people sort of vast underestimate the extent to which they're they're swayed by things. And I think my favorite point on this, there was a study looking at doctors. They surveyed doctors and sort of asked whether their colleagues were swayed by the drug companies, you know, taking them to lunch and offering things. And they said, oh, yes, all of my colleagues are, but I'm not. You know, so it was sort of like everyone else is conflicted, but I'm I'm not. Christy, one of the things I loved best about that is that I was going back and looking at this survey that our former colleague Carl Bialik did of polling companies. And they had almost the exact same kind of results where they, like in this poll, he was asking them about um, kind of fudging, like just copying each other's numbers so that they all kind of look more alike. And everyone suspected that all these other companies were doing it and all of them claimed that they weren't doing it themselves. It's uh, it's hard to look inward. Yeah. I want to point out a couple of things. There's the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services collects information on this. As part of the Affordable Care Act, there's something called open payments. So there's a database where they collect information about payments that drug and device companies make to doctors and to teaching hospitals. And ProPublica has an interactive sort of lookup where you call Dollars for Docs, where you can search your doctor and figure out, and it, and it shows you how much money that person has taken. 
uh, from pharmaceutical companies or device makers uh, over time. So it's sort of in, so there are some resources out there if people are like, oh, I want to know if my doctor is making a lot of money this way. I'd like to just have more information about that. You can you can look some of that up. But again, then what do you do with that information? Is for now. the second question. Well, right for now, I don't know what'll happen to that. Yeah. But one thing that's so interesting is that that's relatively recent that that data is available, and ProPublica really did a public service by creating that, and and you can, that's evidenced by the fact that that website is cited in almost every one of these JAMA articles. I mean, it's like, this is information that was not available until recently and has turned up some pretty serious investigations around specific individuals, but also trends in the medical field at large, which kind of does speak to the importance of this question of transparency and other people from the outside being able to look and say, hey, is this is this posing an issue? Absolutely. The very first step to any of this, right, in any assessment is just having that transparency and knowing, okay, what are the interests? Um, you know, what money have people received? What stakes do they have? You know, the doctor who also owns the company who's taking those imaging tests or doing your blood tests, things like that, just having that out there. You know, in the case of Donald Trump, it would be like, you know, we don't have those documents showing his financial interests. And so without that, it's really hard to say, you know, no, he's not conflicted. I mean, if, if he's not conflicted, you know, if he has nothing to hide, he should stop hiding it. Mm-hmm. I think the insider outsider thing is really interesting because that same article um, that I was talking about before, you know, one of the things that it was finding when it looked at surveys of people and sort of how they deal with transparency and what they think about their own physicians is that we're, we all give more slack to our personal physicians than we are willing to give to a different physician with the same conflicts of interest. And, you know, it wouldn't shock me that we kind of feel the same about our own personal representatives, right? Like, our guy, like that syndrome matters. And I think that we, you know, I'm, if I look at the conflict of interest of your doctor, I'm going to feel really different about that than the conflicts of interest of my doctor. Right. I mean, have you guys ever been to a doctor and, and noticed that they're, you know, an office is just plastered with X, Y, or Z promotional material? It makes me feel really weird when I'm, when I'm getting treatment in that, in that environment, though I understand that you know, there are and many places have started to put restrictions in place to sort of tamp down on some of that. But it does make me wonder every time if I'm being recommended a specific treatment because it's the best one or because there's a, you know, there's some other rationale for it. I will say, Blythe, really quickly that I most of my adult life, I've had like high deductible you know, emergency insurance. And so I've gone to community health clinics most of my life. And you don't see that there. (laughs) Nobody's courting those guys. It's really nice. Yeah. (laughs) Like, just give me the care and get me out of here. (laughs) Okay, wait, I want to pause right here for a message from this week's sponsor. We'll continue our discussion in just a second. Looking good doesn't need to cost a fortune. 5-4 Club is revolutionizing the way men shop. Each month, they send you a curated box of two to three items that are handpicked to match your style. They know what they're doing, so if you don't, that's okay. 5-4 Club will help you build your wardrobe one month at a time. You get $120 worth of clothes for just $60 a month, and you can pause or cancel anytime. Go to 54club.com right now and enter promo code 538, and they'll give you 50% off your first month's package, plus a free pair of sunglasses. That's 50% off your first package at 5-4 Club, spelled F-I-V-E-F-O-U-R club.com, promo code 538. That's 5-4 club.com, promo code 538. 
Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country, and its mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron achieves this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Blue Apron has established partnerships with more than 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranches across the United States. As a result, seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals, and produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. Because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, they are reducing food waste as well. Upcoming meals include seared chicken and creamy pasta salad with summer squash and sweet peppers, creamy shrimp rolls with quick pickles and sweet potato wedges, fresh basil fettuccine pasta with sweet corn and cubanelle pepper, and chili butter steaks with Parmesan potatoes and spinach. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash point. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash point. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, and we're back. So we've been talking a little bit about the medical field and potential and or slash non-potential real conflicts of interest. Are there parallels? Like, can we relate these scientific and medical conflicts of interest back to conflict of interest in other fields? So, we, I mean, I couldn't find anything specifically saying that, but you do see like these things where findings from one field seem to kind of hold with findings from another. So we already talked about that example of, you know, seeing a conflict of interest in your colleagues that you assume is not there in yourself, that that kind of exists in politics, just like it exists in medicine. Um, And we know that, you know, the relationship between findings and fundings is one of the strongest, you know, evidentiary phenomenons in the science conflicts of interest. And it's also kind of like one of the things that we can actually sort of find in politics is that, um, you know, there are these connections between money and what happens. So you have these studies where they'll look at the majority of American people wanted a particular policy, and then you have these special interest groups and, like, moneyed corporations wanting a particular policy. And when those conflict, it's the groups with the more money that win. Yeah, so looking at those ones at the margins, maybe not even at the margins, but where there is obvious conflict and figuring out the results of that, I mean, that's one way to look at it. Maggie, you mentioned the links between findings and funding before. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm not sure we've fully gone into detail on that. Yeah. So one of the most robust findings that we have on conflicts of interest in medicine is that if a corporation or, you know, like somebody has funded your research, you are more likely to come up with research that, you know, supports them in some way. And that's a really strong finding across lots of different studies. And it's not necessarily like you're doing it intentionally. And I think that's the thing that's the most interesting to kind of come out of that. And it's also one of those things that sort of connects these findings with what we know about politics as well, is that it's probably not like people meeting in dark alleys and saying, I will give you X amount of money if you will vote for this bill. It's these more kind of subtle influences where if we feel nice feelings about somebody because they gave us a sandwich, we are more pleasantly inclined to do good things for them. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, again, I think it still comes back to this question of, of okay, you know, we know that 
money probably does have some influence over us in terms of scientific research. There's some decent evidence to that effect. There's decent evidence that in it affects medicine. We It's harder to get evidence on politics, but it does sound like it suggests that those two things are related, right? With funding and yeah, so yeah, there's this really interesting study of um, all the different state legislatures that found a correlation between the amount of time politicians spend fundraising and how much power their contributors had. So it wasn't just like the money they brought in; it was the amount of time they spent around those donors and interacting with those donors and socializing with those donors, and like that had an influence, it seems. I don't think it's only money, though. I think that it's important to think about sort of tribalism, too, and things like a lot of it is about building relationships. And so the really effective lobbying and things will really try to build sort of interpersonal warmth and things like that and, and making people feel like we're on the same team. I mean, that's kind of the most effective way you can get someone to do what you want them to, right, or to be to sort of promote your interests. <laughs> Christy, you've talked a bit about like the difference between bias and conflict of interest. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so here it is important maybe to make a distinction between conflict of interest and bias, which are, are not the same thing. So bias is something we all have. It's you know an inclination towards a particular point of view. We all have sort of pre-existing beliefs and things that that we want to be true. And so the, those are the biases. And some of them are just about ourselves, right? We want to think that whatever we think is correct and right. And so if you're a researcher doing research, you want to think that you're going to get a good result and you're doing important work and things like that. Whereas conflicts of interest are really where you have the conflict, where where whatever um, you know your primary job is. So if you're a researcher, that job is to seek truth, right? We're talking pretty high-minded here, but in, in you know, theory, that's what it should be, right? And when that sort of quest for truth comes into conflict with your funders um, of objectives. Um, maybe it's your university that wants you to get a splashy headline so that they can get on the 10 o'clock news or get um, extra funding, you know, from, from donors and things like that. So the conflict is really when, when that primary job that you're supposed to be doing comes into conflict with some outside influencer or another, another interest that's not the primary one. Yeah. Elizabeth Rosenthal, is, who we had on the podcast recently, has talked about this a lot in her book um, about the healthcare system. And it's interesting because she's sort of like, you know, look, journalists cannot invest. I'm not I'm not holding up journalism as like the, you know, pinnacle of um, honesty or something here. But like we, you know, you can't, you can't have investments in the things you report on. But physicians can have investments in like hospitals and medical devices that they prescribe, which, you know, look, is really an entrenched part of our system, but is when you sort of step back a little bit, kind of shocking, right? Like it's definitely presents a clear conflict of interest. So if I, I was, it's like, how do you, where do you go from here is kind of interesting. So there's a example politically that I, I think everybody should kind of be paying attention to a little in Quebec, where in 2015, they changed the political donation laws. So now there are like these really incredibly stringent limits on donations that it's only individual citizens can donate and no corporations at all, no unions, just individuals. And you're limited to a hundred Canadian dollars a year. So that's like 76 bucks a year that you can donate to politicians in Quebec. And that was 
this response to this really long history of political corruption and like quid pro quo, like, you know, the kind of easily documentable political corruption that Quebec had had for just generations. Um, And it's really going to be interesting to sort of see how that plays out um, because there have been in this last year some allegations that some of the politicians instead of you know of giving these big government grants to donors you know giving these contracts to companies that have donated money to them are now sort of giving big government contracts to companies that are owned or managed by their friends and family so you know even if you get rid of the financial interest there's still these other interests that are harder to get rid of right not everybody is a robot right and has yeah. no family and no friends nobody on in, yeah. <laughs> nobody on earth who they'd like to help out you know if they given the opportunity right yeah. that that is interesting right though. well and on the flip side though you have like british columbia where apparently anybody can donate any amount of money that they want to to any party so like even I, like I could go na- donate a million dollars to a party, a political party in British Columbia. It, it, you don't even have to be from Canada. Becky, I want to go back to Quebec, though. I mean, this is really interesting to me because what it does is it actually implies that you can get rid of these conflicts, right? So they got rid of this one conflict of people you know, buying off politicians, right? So then they were sort of, you know, they went to this other one. So you know, you can't you can't get rid of every conflict with one policy, right? But it does. I mean, to me, that sort of implies that it worked for that particular problem. Am I right? Well, it hasn't been around for very long, so I think it's maybe too early to tell for certain that it worked for that particular problem. It seems like it might, but like they also, they've had the limits against corporations and unions for a really long time, and this really stringent $100 individual donation limit got implemented because there was this huge inquiry in 2015 after the previous limit was like $3,000 Canadian per person per year. And they found that these construction companies would have the entire management team, you know, like hundreds of people donating the ex donating the limit. So like it was still happening even at $3,000 limit. So it'll be interesting to sort of see what happens at a $100 limit. Right. So there are some solutions like that or attempts at solutions. And who knows, we'll see if that one works or doesn't work or gets people closer, right? Gets closer to a eliminating conflicts of interest, at least related to money and politics. But in terms of the other ones, you know, I think that we seem to have come down on the side, on the side of transparency, which, you know, is, I think, important. If you don't know about a conflict, you can't make any sort of judgment about whether you think it's um, reasonable or unreasonable. But I'm not sure that I just don't know that there are other very straightforward solutions. Yeah, I don't I want to just point out here, too. I don't think that transparency is it's only the first step. Like it's not a solution Mm -hmm. in itself. It's only sort of the minimum that you need to even address it. Um, I think and I've seen this. This is addressed in some of the JAMA papers that we're talking about, where there's this idea that if you just if you just disclose, then that sort of gets rid of it, and everyone can see and they can judge for themselves. But it doesn't actually eliminate the conflict, and in mm-hmm. some cases, it may actually do. Um, you know, it may actually make people feel like, well, I disclosed, and so everything's cool, and you can judge me. You know, and so it almost sort of puts the honest on the outside world, right, to to judge instead of the person who should be like removing that conflict maybe to begin with. Um, but it's mm-hmm. almost like 
um, I think it maybe assumes too much about what disclosure can do. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. while there's these like, while there's these like sort of big definitions about conflict of interest again in JAMA that are maybe, I, you know, ideal, but not exactly easily applied in the real world. There was one study that looked at like, does it matter sort of how much money we're talking about here when we're talking about a conflict of interest? And, you know, they didn't come to a strong conclusion, I wouldn't say, the researchers, but they did kind of point out that there definitely seems to be a difference between, you know, a $20 lunch and, you know, a $10,000 or $50,000 stake in a company. And that, you know, there are real world applications where you can think about the difference between these things and, and sort of um, try to avoid them accordingly. Well, and that whole, like, transparency is enough meme is basically been like the Trump administration's argument about like why they don't have a problem because like everyone knows he's this international but they haven't been transparent either right, or, right? right but like what they're saying is that everyone knows he's an international businessman who has these financial connections to hotels and real estate all over the world everybody knows already so it's not a problem and that's kind of an example of what you're saying that like just people knowing this exists is not enough. Well, no, I, I mean, I, I agree. I think it is interesting. It's instructive, though, because it's helpful to know that there is evidence out there that can tell us a little bit about how money can influence other areas of life when it is in conflict or potentially in conflict with the primary interest of the person who's receiving it in terms of the professional obligations. I mean, it is also interesting that we've chosen to treat politics so differently than other fields in terms of conflict of interest and what it means and what might be influential and that kind of thing. I mean, there are Supreme Court cases about this stuff. So it's pretty it's pretty interesting that we have just taken such a different approach. I'm not sure we apply what we know about the science to the political mm-hmm. realm. Right. I wish I knew yeah, like what percent money if, could affect results of of a scientific study, right? Like, is a science is a scientist thirty percent more likely to find positive results if she's funded by, you know, by industry? And then, then can I look well, at? Well, there it are some data There's, on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there are. It, it is. I mean, there. It, the results are much more positive when there's industry funding. Like that's established. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just hard to interpret that information. As a consumer of the data, right. you know what I mean. It's it's difficult to to then say this is what that means to me, and this is how I'm going to d- to think about this finding now that I know that. But I think I mean again, I think we all agree that transparency is the first step. But it's I mean, unless it's all that we're going to put all of our all of this money into one giant pool, and it's going to be assigned randomly to scientists, ba- you know, by some committee or something. I don't know. It's really tricky to fund science. Well, particularly in certain fields. Um, I'm working on a, a book about sports science, and that's a field. I mean, it's been very frustrating to me because the quality of the the studies is is pretty low in a lot of cases. But the other thing is, so much of it is funded by industry. I mean, not entirely, but there just isn't. You know, there is an NIH for sports stuff, and you know, things that are effective are often proprietary, and so it makes it really hard to sort of address the you know how good the science is and address some of the data when it, it isn't completely transparent and so much of the the funding comes from you know not necessarily unbiased sources okay i think let's wrap up does anyone have closing thoughts on conflict of interest or anything they took away from this that they felt like was actionable or would change how they thought about conflict of interest going forward i 
kind of took away this idea that like conflicts of interest in everything have basically always existed you know for the entirety of human civilization right I mean that is that is the good old boys network that is like you know down straight down to like your teacher being nicer to the kid whose parents hang out with her on weekends when you're in kindergarten right like it, this is constant thing but what is important is that we actually think it's a problem and we actually talk about it even if we don't solve it i think the talking about it and trying to solve it is almost as important as getting it solved would be if that were possible. Yeah, that's interesting. And I've been wondering, you know, if so the Trump administration has handled the question of conflict of interest very differently than previous administrations. And part of that's because there are norms and not necessarily rules around this for um, the president. And I do wonder if we will have a conversation at a later date that kind of addresses whether or not there need to be more regulations than there currently are, or if we'll continue down the path run right now where it's it's more around norms and the individual decisions of a president rather than um, something that's mandated by law. Yeah, and I think human history sort of shows that the way you get actual like um, entrenched rules and codified laws about about this kind of stuff is is you know you have norms that get broken and so it it makes people agree yes this is a problem and so yeah I think one of the takeaways for me in looking into this stuff is that it's very easy to see conflicts of interest in other people um, particularly people you don't agree with it's very difficult to see them in yourself and getting rid of conflicts of interest generally means that you are putting your own interests aside for you know whatever it is your job is and people just sort of I mean it's human nature we don't want to do that we want to you know, look at what is that phrase, you know, looking out for number one, you know, we're sort of by nature wanting to look out for ourselves first. And so it's hard. It's very difficult to get rid of that on your own. And this is why you know, rules and laws about this sort of stuff are very helpful. That's such a great point, Christy, about, you know, that it's easy to see in other people, but harder to see in yourself. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, that seems like a good closing spot. Thanks so much, Christy Ashwanden. Nice to be here. Thanks. Thanks, Maggie Kurth-Baker. Yeah, thank you. And thanks, Anna Maria Berry-Jester. Thanks as always, Blythe. That's it for this episode of Sparks, where we chatted about conflicts of interest in science and medicine and politics a bit. In our next podcast, we'll interview an expert in this arena to help us sort through some of this as well. Thanks very much to our producers, Chadwick Matlin and Jody Avergan, and thanks to Tony Chow and Martin Onebu for production assistance. Katie Ferguson is our editor. The What's the Point music is by Hrishikesh Herway. We do this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed. Please subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and help spread the word. And let us know what you think by emailing podcasts at 538.com with any comments or suggestions. I'm Blythe Terrell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.